Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome to the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome to the show two people who are at the leading edge of conceptualizing the skills-based organization, Sue Contrell and Michael Griffiths of Deloitte. Sue is the Vice President of Products and Workforce Strategies and focuses on the innovation of thought leadership and research, as well as the commercialization of new solutions, while Michael is a partner in Deloitte's workforce transformation practice. Together, they have been working on the concept of a skills-based organization, and today I get to pick their brains on what this means for HR programs and professionals, employee experience and mobility, and for creating a more agile organization as well as the steps we can take to transition towards a skills-based organization. So let's head over to the conversation. Enjoy. For over a century, jobs have been the, the dominant structure of work and governed the, um, the operating models that businesses and, and HR are guided by. But recently, we, we have seen this shift towards a, a skills-based organization. And you know, what would be great, I think, for, for listeners, and you know, most of our listeners are in the, in the HR space and you know, should be at the forefront of this, potentially, this transition. What exactly is a skills-based organization and why do you think the shift is, is occurring? And, and, and Michael, I'll come to you on this one. Yeah, uh, a great setup, David. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, for over a century, historically, uh, what jobs have defined how work is done by Hume and and sort of how it's managed a leg, and and ultimately HR's responsibility has been to support sort of support the job architecture as a focus area. So if you think of from hiring to compensation to career progression to performance management. It's all embedded in HR's impact through jobs. And rarely have people stopped to sort of talk about, you know, well, is this actually the best way of doing things? And sort of confining work into tasks and jobs and then making decisions about those defined tasks is really hindering the organization's ability to do what they really need to do today, which is agility, growth, innovation, equity. Um, and it's not really driving or giving the ability for organizations to do that. Uh, and all... And ultimately, you know, HR's role to drive an equitable and positive workforce environment, uh, skills is one of the ways to move in that direction. So, so organizations are experimenting, moving towards their skills-based org, and it really is a new operating model for work. So why is this happening? One of your questions, you know, there's a few stats that came out from our research. You know, 71% of workers already perform some work outside of their job description. So obviously jobs aren't really defining what people are doing. And only 24% of workers say that they actually perform the same tasks as as people in their organization with the same job description. So it's two stats basically saying your jobs really aren't defining what people are doing. Uh, And many people also are not really saying that they're going to perform their work through a job at all. 55% 55% of our respondents said they have already or likely to to shift workforce models. So this means permanent, full-time projects, internal marketplace, freelance and gig. They're literally going to ch- change how they do their work. Um, if they haven't, they're going to do it in the near-term future. So if you're relying on jobs um, to sort of architect how you're getting talent or delivering work, it's not necessarily going to be future-based. 
and then equity uh, i think is a really important conversation on this on this topic david you know 80 percent of business executives say that making decisions based on hiring pay promotion succession by making them on skills rather than jobs enables them to reduce bias and improve fairness so there's a recognition that there's an equitable uh, equation here for moving to skills-based. I was recently at the pleasure of being in a session with Ken Fraser recently, the ex-CEO of Merck, who is the champion of the 110 Initiative, which is a a, a US-based initiative for creating 1 million jobs for black Americans in 10 years, and essentially moving from hierarchical hiring on degrees and certifications to more experience and multiple different ways of doing that, but ultimately in in, in African-American culture. And he talks about the importance of organizations hiring on skills, going beyond credentials, degrees, and certifications, skills at the center of that strategy. So it really is becoming a C-suite initiative. And I think the other element of it is around changing workforce expectations, the autonomy, the growth, the focus on human sustainability and stakeholder capitalism, Worker agency is absolutely on the rise, and we talk about this in our human capital trends, actually. But specifically to this topic, I think the agency element is coming alive, but also the ability and, and, and maturity of workers to say that they're okay with people utilizing their data. There was an HBR article that came out last year that 90% of workers are willing for organizations to use their workforce data, including skills as one of those key components, if they can demonstrate how they're using it to further their workforce experience. So the worker is uh, is at the point of saying, please access it, but utilize it in a way that benefits me. And our study, which I, I know led to our conversation here, David, we, we surveyed over 1,000 workers and 225 business and HR leaders, as well as dozens of dozens of executive interviews. And we essentially found a plethora of organizations doing experimentals, so sort of pushing on one talent process with skills or dipping their toe with different tech or experiences, but only 5%, 5 to 10% of organizations that really try driving manageable or impactful change, really enterprise-wide and driving business and ultimately workforce experiences across the organization. But those organizations that were, we found a 63% more likely to achieve results. And I'll talk about what they mean by results in a second, business and HR results more than those organizations that are not moving towards skills. And some of those impacts are quite, really quite transformational. So we found that 107%, these organizations are 107% likely to play, more likely to place talent effectively, 98% more likely to retain high performers, 79% more likely to have a positive workforce experience. And I think this last one's critical. 57% more likely to anticipate change and respond effectively and efficiently. So it's absolutely an imperative for organizations and why we're so passionate about talking about it. So I'm going to turn turn to you now. What does a skills-based organization actually mean in practice? Can you tell us more about what this operating model looks like? Yes, we, we really do think about it as a new operating model, not only for work, but for the workforce. And when we think about it, it really has four components. The first is to reimagine what we mean by workers. So right now we tend to think of workers as being employees in jobs. And I think the big shift here is to think about workers as individuals 
not just job holders, right? And we almost call it a workforce of one, where we're recognizing and seeing workers as individuals that could be on or off balance sheet, each with a unique ability to make contributions with a portfolio of skills and capabilities to make meaningful contributions to a range of work, right? And I just want to pause here and, and define what we mean by skills, because this is the basis of um, obviously the skills-based organization. We broadly define skills to encompass not only hard or technical skills, think coding, data analysis, accounting, but also human capabilities. So those would be things like critical thinking, emotional intelligence, the ability to team, and then finally potential. And I think this one often gets overlooked, and I think it's critical. Um, it would be things like adjacent or near skills. What are those skills that could easily be transferable and with a little bit of development turned into the skill that an organization needs? It would be latent qualities and abilities that can be learned and developed for future success. Um, so we think about workers based on this broad portfolio of types of skills. And when workers are really unbound from being defined kind of by their job, then work is no longer kind of a one-to-one -one relationship between employees and jobs, but rather it's a many, many to relationship between work and skills. And that opens up all kinds of new opportunities. So that's kind of the first component. The second component is to rethink work from being only organized in jobs in kind of a functional hierarchy to being a portfolio of ways to organize work, including and beyond the job. And I say that because we don't think the job will ever go away. What's happening here is that we're seeing a divergence, a way of organizing work beyond the job. So organizations have a portfolio. And what do I mean by beyond the job? There are two ways of doing that. One is what we call fractionalizing work. That's breaking work down into projects, tasks, right, that can continuously evolve as business needs change. And then kind of workers with skills and capabilities can kind of flow to those projects and tasks. So we're seeing that, obviously, in internal talent marketplaces. That's kind of what we call partial fractionalization. And that's where workers can take a percentage of their time. Um, they're still performing their core job, but then they can flow anywhere in the organization to projects and tasks. We are seeing this fully fractionalized approach in a couple organizations like Hire, where over 75,000 employees work in this kind of fully fractionalized model. An internal talent marketplace governs how talent flows to specific projects and work is structured into self-organizing fluid micro-enterprises with 10 to 15 kind of workers, which are on or off balance sheet each. The other way of organizing work beyond a job is to broaden broaden the job. And so this is organizing work around outcomes or problems to be solved. And it's really making it broader, opposite of kind of narrowing it in fractionalization. When we did our survey, 79% of HR leaders say they were already evolving roles to be bigger and more integrative. They're oftentimes evolving these roles to embrace adjacent job functions. So an example of partial broadening would be Cleveland Clinic. They have doctors, nurses, right? They've broadly defined all staff as caregivers. And what's really interesting is instead of organizing by medical specializations, groups instead are formed around patients and their illnesses in multidisciplinary collaborative teams. So again, it's around those outcomes they're trying to achieve. And then some organizations, um, you know, just a few like Morningstar are throwing the job away entirely 
And each worker drafts their own outcomes and problems to be solved. And then authority and pay are based on skills, expertise, and value created. And just an interesting data point, when we asked both workers and leaders about what they felt would be the best way to organize work, only 19% of business leaders and 23% of workers say jobs is the best way to create value for workers in the organization. Business leaders tended to prefer fractionalized work. Workers tended to prefer broadened work, but both of them preferred work outside of the traditional job. So that's kind of the second component of skills-based organization. The third is to use skills more than jobs to make decisions about the workforce. So this goes throughout the entire talent life cycle. Everything from skills-based hiring, skills-based team composition. Can you match worker skills to teams to create optimal team compositions? Skills-based careers, using AI to suggest career experiences based on skills, interests, potential. Skills-based learning. Traditionally, we assigned learning based on people's jobs. Can we instead suggest learning based on their skills, their skills gaps, their interests, skills-based pay? I could go on and on. And then the fourth component of a skills-based organization is what we call a skills hub. And really, this is the engine or the infrastructure that powers the skills-based organization. Underneath this would be things like, do you have a shared skills-based talent philosophy? Because really it's that red thread that pulls together all of our workforce or talent practices. Do you have a common language for skills and ways to organize it? Do you have the right skills data and technology enablers? So all of these four components come together to make this new operating model for work in the workforce. Now, it's really helpful the the way you've laid it out there, Sue. And and I'm guessing that using skills more than jobs to make decisions around talent from hiring all the way through the the, the examples that you mentioned that really talks to the equity piece that, that michael highlighted as well where we could potentially broaden the initial talent pool that we're looking in in our organizations if we base it on skills rather than than education and and that supports a lot of initiatives and maybe supports the s in esg that a lot of organizations are uh, are striving to achieve as well absolutely it results in equity, fairness, and then better decisions, honestly. It, a lot of them can drive greater agility. In today's world of work, there is no new normal. With everything from where we work to what we need to work on constantly changing, it can be impossible to figure out how to retain, develop, deploy, and adapt your workforce. So where do you go to get the answers? probably not your HCM or another static database. You need real-time, meaningful data and a way to act fast. That's where Gloat comes in. Gloat's workforce agility platform bridges the gap between getting the information you need to make decisions and taking action. You get workforce intelligence to help you adapt and evolve your workforce while unlocking the potential of your employees with a talent marketplace. Sound too good to be true? Gloat is working at scale with the world's leading employer brands like HSBC, Novartis and Nestle to help them cut costs, drive productivity increases, increase innovation and speed to market and to design a future fit workforce. Find out how at gloat.com. That's G-L-O-A-T dot com.
So, Michael, turning to you, you know, this change is a significant shift. You've both highlighted that from the job space model that we have always known. I mean, Sue highlighted the whole, all, all the HR programs that we've been delivering as, as HR professionals for years and how they, they, they will change if we, if we look at it from a, with a skills lens. So what does this mean for HR? And also maybe what does it mean for the people analytics function as well? Yeah, great, great question. And, and obviously a lot of the listeners are going to be key to thinking about what does this mean for their, for their job, for their function, their capability. You know, every HR practice is based upon the notion of a job traditionally so that's obviously a transformational journey if we're moving beyond it and to exactly as sue's point it's not be it's not taking away it's beyond it um, but beyond it does offer opportunity as much as challenge and i do think that's an important conversation here this is an absolute opportunity for hr to deliver value beyond their traditional models of, of talent management so i do think there's huge huge opportunity but it is happening. So I, I, if anyone's sitting there and saying, you know what, I can continue doing what I'm doing, I'm not sure that, that that's really the best plan. Uh, 72% of our business and HR executives now survey agree the role of HR will move from managing employment to orchestrating work. So this is a big shift. Think about you're not managing people anymore, you're orchestrating work. And I do think that's that shift, as Sue talked about, from fractionalizing and broadening work rather than managing talent processes is a big shift. So if if you don't understand sort of how work operates and how teams flow, how tasks and projects are formed, but more just sort of work, work through your talent processes, then I think that maybe you may be missing something. And this aspect of, of sort of broadening is very important. 77% agree that HR should transform from a siloed function to a boundaryless discipline. We've written about boundaryless uh, a lot in our uh, human capital trends coming out in January. But I think this as aspect of sort of setting up new fundamentals and skills based is one of those for HR to uh, adopt some sort of consistency in this lack of boundaries is is a very a key component of that. So what does what does that mean? I do think the, the important thing for HR is that everything that Sue just talked through is in the realm of HR to govern, but not necessarily to own. You know, finance is going to have to need to change the way values work so that HR can set compensation levels. Procurement will need to access and deploy skills much better when they're looking at sort of hiring and freelancing. And HR is obviously going to have to partner within that perspective. But even further up the value chain, strategy and operations will need to think differently about how they structure and organize work when they're putting those strategies together. So HR can be the champion here but needs to coalesce partners across the organization. 90% of business and HR executives say that moving to a skills-based organization will require transformations for all functions and leaders, not just HR. So the data is absolutely telling us this story. It's good that companies are wrecking executives and, and people are recognizing that the change, at least. The area of, of, of Sue's fourth point around creating a skills hub is critical here. And a key component of that is data. There's multiple layers for skills data. There's actually the data, uh, future-based and current-based skills data. You can't rely on what sits within your organization. You're absolutely going to have to think about data flow and sources of data to, to keep you on future skills and where organizations should be uh, going deep on those critical skills. So you need good data. And only 68% of business and HR leaders say they are confident 
that the hard skills they've documented on their workforce are verified and valid. And that's an important point here. We're saying even if you do have data there, is it verified and valid that your people actually have those skills? Deloitte has actually developed its own human capability assessment in partnership with the University of Washington because we think there's a massive gap on just on self-reporting and manager approval and you need to find different ways of inferencing on those skills. So finding how work can tell you whether people have these skills and other types of things and then AI capabilities to sort of make some logic and connections through your talent processes and work. And people analytics need to understand what's out there in the marketplace, what to build, buy, and then how does it all map together and drive the opportunity that HR is trying to drive within the organization. So huge challenge, but again, as I said at the start for HR, massive opportunity. Just to follow up on that, Michael, we, we talked already about HR and, and people analytics and, and obviously the need to, to partner with other business functions. What does it mean for managers and leaders outside HR? I mean, you talked earlier about it potentially they can be a little bit more agile and, and react to change quicker. Obviously, that's a benefit. But what does it mean in their day-to-day of, of managers and leaders? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And we've written again in a human capital trends report about leading the boundaries well, because we think leaders have a massive challenge today. Whatever you're doing in the organization, your frontline workers, leaders at all levels, um, and I'll talk about management in a second, are, are ultimately where the rubber hits the road. If you don't sort of enable them to be successful in, in your change and shift and operating model, et cetera, and then the workforce is not going to be able to go along with them. Leaders have to enable that broadening of work and focus on the outcome and enable their teams to get to that outcome. And those teams could be multiple across the organization, outside the organization could be technology, um, helping them achieve that outcome, but they have to orchestrate that work rather than managing or, or leading people necessarily. So that complexity of a leader in this world has absolutely changed and, and made it many, much, much harder. However, some organizations are saying, okay, let's just call it a project manager. So people are project managers based upon these evolving teams and focus areas and not necessarily a manager and a mid-level component. So I think there's there's element of that. If managers do go away in these organizations, it then highlights the need for good leadership because it emphasizes that leader across all the levels to for people to go to, to feel connected to. And this is where culture comes in. You know, without managers' components, leaders have to really hold and carry the bag of culture. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating, isn't it, to see how it plays out. I, I mean, for, for those listening... You know, there's a, there was a really good HVR article last year by Linda Gratton and Diane Gearson that looked at the role of the manager as we move into this 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 new world. And they actually, I think there was an example of Telstra in Australia where they have managers of people and managers of work. So, so Sue, turning to you, you know, and, and obviously we've seen this playing out over the last, you know, the last few months in particular, a lot of organisations, particularly in the tech space, you know, have been experiencing a skill shortage that's been going on for, for some time now. And of course, over the last few weeks or few months, we've seen a, a few, you know, a lot of layoffs within that industry vertical in, in particular. How can a focus on skills help create an ecosystem, a better ecosystem, frankly, for acquiring, developing, retaining and, and even mobilizing talent? I think the skills based approach really helps organizations be in a good place in either scenario with either talent shortages or in the case of layoffs. So if you did the foundational skills work ahead, one of the things we're seeing with client work is that 
they're better able to win the war for talent. And if they have layoffs, they're able either able to reduce them or help workers be more employable so that it creates that human sustainability and they're still doing good for their workers. So how does that happen? So one, I think probably the most important one is being able to fluidly move skills to shifting business priorities through going beyond the job is critical. So in this case, one of the things you can do is redeploy workers. So if you have a big demand in one area of your business and softening demand in another, you can redeploy them. That can reduce layoffs um, using the ability to identify adjacent or foundational skills. You can move people to new work. We asked in our survey and 54% of leaders say using AI to identify that hidden or adjacent skills would help them retain displaced workers and help them reskill them. And of course, this also helps with growth. You know, if, if organizations are able to move workers to new types of work that everybody learns, there's growth, development, mobility opportunities. And we all know that growth and development is one of the big drivers of retention. So that helps also with talent shortages. So you can unlock that trapped capacity and better utilize the skills of workers. The second reason why I think it it is leaves organizations in good stead in either scenario is you can develop the skills, right, with a skills-based organization approach. So if you if you develop them, then organizations, even if they have to lay off workers, they're more employable, right? The issue here is that when we asked in our survey, 77% of leaders say their organization should help workers become more employable with relevant skills but only 5% strongly agree that they're investing enough and helping people learn new skills to keep up with the changing world of work. So this is this is a missed opportunity. It not only helps your organization, but it helps them in cases when demand softens and they need to be employed elsewhere. Skills-based hiring is another one. I mean, we asked in our survey, 70% of those respondents said they're getting create more creative about sourcing for skills rather than job experience in light of talent shortages. So a couple interesting examples here. There was a telecommunications company that we interviewed and they needed machine learning skills. And of course, that's one of the hardest skills to get out on the market. It's just real, especially for one when you're not in the tech industry, when you're not. So those workers, they, they were just too hard to hire. So what did they do? They analyzed profiles of thousands and thousands of workers who identified themselves as machine learning experts. And then they looked at what were their pathways? What were their adjacent skills that then they built on to develop those machine learning skills? What were their experiences? And then they developed algorithms to search and hire for those. They didn't have machine learning jobs. They didn't have machine learning degrees but they were able to increase their talent pool by three times than what the company thought it was because they were able to do that. And then the last point I'll make is the ability to share data on skills across organizations can also help. So right now, when you think about it, most data on the skills of workers, especially that employer verified data, not the self-report data on skills, it sits inside of a company. But when workers leave, all of their verified records typically get left behind. And this hinders the ability for them to move between permanent roles, projects, gigs across organizations. And if organizations can help them retain that data by using technologies like blockchain or skills passports, then that will help workers be able to move more fluidly and be more employable. And Sue, just as a quick follow up, you know, what what does what does all this mean, you know, 
what you just talked about for employees. I know when we've spoken before, you talked about ha- the the well being aspect of a of a skills based organization as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, workers want this. So, seventy three percent of workers said skills based practices would improve their experience at work. About 66% said they'd be more likely to be attracted to and remain in an organization with skills-based approaches. And then when we asked them around, how would you like your organization to make decisions about you when doing things like hiring or deploying them to work? And they ranked, I think we asked 11 factors or 11 types of data sources. They want decisions to be made based on their demonstrated skills first and it was 18% higher than education and degree and 11% higher than their current or prior job experience. So clearly workers want this. And I think the question is why. So a couple reasons. One is they can be seen as an individual rather than masked as a job holder. It opens opportunity, right? They, we're not constraining their opportunities based on their degrees or direct prior job experience. And I think an interesting point on this is that it helps them realize their potential. So I was a little floored by the fact that only 14% of business leaders strongly agree their organization is using their workforce's skills and potential to their fullest potential, and only 26% of workers strongly agree. And what happens is defining workers by their jobs kind of suboptimizes people's potential because it obscures their full range of capabilities. But if we can break out of that and think of workers as as a range of skills, capabilities, potential, but also interests, passions, motivations, to be able to see them as their full picture, then we can let them continuously learn, try new things. And in a way, it's almost looking at everybody as a high potential. We used to only have those developmental experiences reserved for what the organization deemed as high potential. But today with technology, we can move them around to projects, give them the developmental opportunities and the coaching and mentoring that was only previously reserved for a few. Michael, I'd like to talk a little bit now about the the process of creating a successful skills-based organization. Obviously, we, we've highlighted a little bit about technology. It's, it's clearly an important aspect of this. But perhaps a more critical enabler of success is effective change management, which I know uh, at Deloitte you'll be experts about. Um, so through your through your research, you know what are companies doing to successfully transition towards a, a skills based organization? Yeah, and it's it's really the crux of that question is, is really evolution, not revolution. We've talked about this being a, a massive shift. It absolutely is. But for organizations, we see success in. Is, is is sort of taking bites of the apple, right? Rather than trying to do the whole piece at once. And and when you consider areas of your organization or parts of your talent process, the clients we work with are sort of looking at areas where skills are changing so fast that their talent practices can't keep up. So it could be areas of the business that are doing that. It could be where you're getting feedback that you're losing diverse thinking or, or skill sets, or you're, you're lacking innovation, creativity, products, development, etc. Or you're losing top talent, and you're hearing from uh, your organization there's sort of lack of transparency to opportunities. You know, on that particular topic, we've been working with uh, Chris Ernst at Workday, who's the CLO, and he, he absolutely talked around a lot of the feedback they got from their organization was that the, uh, people didn't feel like they had opportunities to develop. 
uh, and there wasn't a lack a lack of transparency for people to move to the next level. So they really focus on the talent marketplace for their workmates, and, and they've got quite staggering stats of how people signed up and moved in that market. So that was their key component for this sort of evolution aspect. And then they're looking across different areas of utilizing Skills Hub to develop value across learning and other talent processes. So I do think it's sort of that evolution aspect of it. And then secondly, I would say really what is, think lead with the why. Uh, I often talk to our clients who often see, like you said at this on this particular podcast, but also who we work with mostly sit in the HR function or some sort of areas that sort of side to the business. And, and uh, my biggest point when they start to put st- sort of steering committee decks together or or leading perspectives for executives is don't say you're becoming a skills-based org. People outside of HR really don't care about that topic or that term. It's around what is it actually value, what is it driving to the business? So are you trying to create better agility or speed to market, better uh, adoption to customer needs, putting the skills where the business needs them, more opportunities for their workforce to grow experiences. Now, a lot of businesses like that, you know, we, we, we want to hold critical talent and we want to drive to that. So that's absolutely aspect of it. But also even more tangibly for businesses, it could be we want to reduce variable costs. And that could be if we find the ability to move people into talent needs or business needs more in an agile or a faster way, we might not need to, to use more external workforce. We can get more out of our core workforce. And literally that could be dollars. Uh, and you can define that. So that ability to drive with the why and, and put it into business terms is absolutely critical as you move forward. And then as you think about the first steps, what is the lowest hanging fruit? Definitely swim downstream. If there's a key component between skills and learning and development, and that's one of the key components from a business perspective that you want to drive towards, absolutely go after that. You can, there's, there's technologies, there's abilities, skills to learning. And as Suit articulated earlier, it's an absolutely way that you can drive some value and you can show that and, and build it. And the third area that we've seen a lot of organizations work is obviously the talent marketplace, that untapped capacity. We're probably seeing the most lift in those three areas, but then we're seeing workforce planning and other areas that are starting to drive value to depending on the challenge. You, you know, I'd say those three steps, definitely think about it. First of all, as an evolution think about the why in the business case and then go after your lowest hanging fruit. Are you an HR leader looking to make more impact with people analytics? Then you won't want to miss an upcoming webinar hosted by Insight222, where we'll share the key insights from our recently published annual people analytics trends report, which was titled Impacting Business Value, Leading Companies in People Analytics. This 90-minute webinar will take place on February 16th and will provide insights on what the best of the best are doing when it comes to people analytics. Our research examines the growth of the market and places a specific lens on the key characteristics of leading companies in the field, based on the findings of a survey with 184 global organisations. We will also provide guidance for leaders and companies keen on delivering more impact with people analytics. You'll have the opportunity to hear from Insight222 CEO Jonathan Farrar and me, David Green, as we talk through the key findings of the research and the current trends in people analytics. We will be joined by Dawn Klinghoffer, one of the foremost leaders in the field and a recent addition to the Insight 222 Board of Advisors. Dawn will provide her own industry perspectives 
as well as practitioner expertise from her role at Microsoft as the global head of people analytics. Don't miss out on this opportunity to stay ahead of the game and gain valuable insights from industry leaders. Register for the Insight 222 People Analytics Trends Research webinar today by visiting our website at insight222.com forward slash research webinar 2022. That's insight222.com forward slash research webinar 2022. You know, what are some of the biggest challenges that the organizations need to overcome? Because again, I, I'm not going to preempt what you say, because I don't know what you're going to say, but I, I imagine that a lot of this, it, it does involve a lot of breaking down some of the traditional silos that we have in, a, in our organization, I imagine being one of those, but I'd love to hear what the biggest challenges that the companies are having to overcome. Yeah, it's actually a specific question we asked in our research because we were really interested in it, uh, and uh, and I obviously add some anecdotes from a from a client work and conversations too. But I was quite fascinated by the intensity of the response in our survey. So we asked across, I think, twelve different dimensions, what would the top three barriers that you reserve in moving to an organization change? And you know, there were there's things in there about insufficient skills data, which I could imagine being a challenge. Inability to evaluate performance based on skills as a specific challenge. I definitely saw that would come. Lack of effective skills related technology. We absolutely thought that would be a challenge. Those three that I just mentioned were in the bottom four. The top one was legacy mindsets and practices. It's people's ability to change. It's absolutely, and it was 46% out of the chosen out of the top. So, fascinating aspects and then the other as the second one was difficulty keeping up with the changing skills needed by the business so that speed the ability to to match where the business is going so yes that infrastructure around change and getting close to the business and then moving people away from it and i think that movement is both business but predominantly hr so i think this element of change management as you've said before is absolutely critical which is why we're seeing organizations create a skills capability in their organization that either sits within learning and development, which happens predominantly, or in a COE to start breaking down barriers and create change and have a business leader and exec be the key sponsor of it because you need someone to to really push and, and govern uh, as you move forward. So Sue, if we, if we look to the future a little bit, uh, and you're particularly good at doing this, what would be the potential challenges of tomorrow if we continue to go down this this path towards the skills-based organization? David, I think one of them, and it's a, it's a big warning point, is never lose focus of the human. The skills-based organization is all about making it more human-centric, but there's a danger that some organizations can have if they go about it in a particular way. So one is you know, over-indexing on skills. So we think it's very, very important of the human capabilities, the hard skills, the potential. But in reality, they're just one part of the equation of what makes us human, right? And so the other important aspects should never be lost. Motivations, interests, location preferences. And I think actually the way Michael and I think about it is skills is kind of the first stage in an evolutionary journey 
towards being able to collect data and make decisions based on a whole range of data points of what makes a person human. Another challenge is making sure that we use all these new sources of data and AI, which skills-based organization is heavily dependent on, responsibly. So that means things like, is your organization clearly telling workers how their data is collected and used? Are you giving benefits back to the workers, not just for the organization? And do they understand them in terms of new opportunities for growth and development, fairer and more meritocratic hiring, pay or promotion decisions, more customized work experiences and the like. Some people have pushed back and said, you know, one of the dangers is that if you use AI to kind of match skills to work in particular tasks and projects, is that like mechanistic? Is it inhuman? Where's the choice in the worker? So you always want to keep the human front and center and you don't want to parcel out work just on AI algorithms, you always need to keep the human in the loop. The other interesting challenge, I think, is when workers are more quantified, if you will, in terms of who's most highly skilled, then they can become more easily discovered and better rewarded. And this may, you know, give rise to almost a hyper meritocracy with most of the rewards and opportunities going to the most highly skilled. I think the caveat to that is make sure you don't just focus on the skills that workers have today. This is why we think that potential is so important. Almost adjacent near skills and potential is almost, I think, equally, if not more important than the skills workers have. You want to keep that in mind because it should be about development as well, not just rewarding people for the skills they have already. Is there anything else that's on the horizon for for this shift that, that that you'd like to highlight as well? Maybe what's coming in the next, you think might be coming in the next sort of two to three years around yeah. this. Yeah, so I, I talked about beyond skills, seeing people as full individuals. I think this, organizations are struggling to find a common language of skills within their organization. I think the next shift will be across organizations and there's been some consortia trying to work through this and that will help with a more frictionless labor market. I think we're going to see the merging of internal and external talent marketplaces coming soon where you'll have almost a single plane of glass looking at skills from whatever source they are. And then I think we're going to continue to see organizations become far more fluid, eventually gradually creeping out beyond the job more and more. Right now, talent marketplaces are voluntary. They're a portion of people's time. They're often seen through a developmental lens more than a business lens of enabling greater agility. And I think it raises the question of what happens if the work workers want to do no longer aligns with the work that organizations need them to do. And that is going to have to be unwrapped and unpacked. And I think we're eventually going to see organizations continue to push the envelope on jobs beyond just the short time voluntary peace in talent marketplaces. Well, it'd be, it'd be great to sit down with the two of you in sort of three three years' time and see where we've got to on this and, and, and what the hot topics are at, at the time. Michael, I'm going to come to you on this one. So this is the question we're asking everyone on this on this series. And, and, you know, obviously we've been talking about it throughout the episode so far. How can a company get started to successfully shift from a focus on jobs to instead of focus on skills? Are there you know, you've talked about some of the the things that people can do, such as you know, um, you know, making sure they start they start with the why, what they're trying to achieve, and look at that lowest hanging fruit, and, and taking you know small chunks of the apple uh, at a time before they 
rather than think it as an enterprise thing uh, right from the right from the off. But are there any are the examples of companies that you that you've worked with or you've seen um, that, that 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 are doing this well? Yeah, a great question. I'll just go through some examples because I think we've talked a lot around steps. Let me just throw out some examples there. And um, we've worked with Cargill over the past few years to to become a skills based parallel pathing their uh, transformation for L&D to become skills-based in partnership with their digital-first learning strategy, and then moving into skills-based hiring, building up a talent marketplace. And as they did that, as I said, they, they really worked on those hub elements, the taxonomy, the ontology for data, the, the business, business strategy and vision. The, the CLO who owned a lot of this transformation basically walked, walked around with a two-page deck and created a video for sort of the value uh, of the exercise as she um, moved through these different talent processes. A second example, financial services organization working on job architecture, their particular business leader who was in charge of this, really sort of on the side of the desk said, I know this is going to be a transformational journey for us, but let's put skills into this job architecture work and start mapping skills to jobs as we build out our job architecture and to create change. And it was a change management journey to do that project that way. A life sciences organization, they focused on really becoming a skills-based organization and starting with the philosophy and the value proposition first. And they created a skills-based mapping playbook, essentially mapping the skills ontology and proficiency levels to learning objectives. So again, moving to learning, but they did start with the sort of business case value proposition, et cetera, philosophy first. And then at the same time, they looked at hot skills or those skills in demand or short supply and built some talent processes around those hot skills. They are looking at cross uh, the talent process, but again, that's how they started. And I think Unilever is the example where they talk about focusing on work, really uh, uh, democratizing work into sort of a way that can think about as the demand. So as you think about moving towards the idea of a marketplace, which is a key component of Unilever's journey with a particular technology provider, they ultimately were looking at external and internal external workers in that marketplace. They talked about the U worker, which is a worker that's a guaranteed minimum retainer along with core sets of benefits. And that's a key component here. You know, they get benefits as well. I think this has been written about extensively. But when we look at that case, they are looking at demand element of work and then supply element of skills and mapping that together. So as you identify that work and then map the skills to it, there's absolutely a compelling business case um, and multiple elements of talent processes and business impacts that you can then put towards C-suite and then get more funding for additional areas. So those are just a few. We've got multiple different ways. As you can see, there's this aspects of different talent processes but ultimately you do need to get to the core of the apple <laughs> uh, uh, as you take bites at building that skills hub and and create that taxonomy that digital strategy and the change management and and business execution as you do it well michael and sue it's been a fascinating conversation um i reckon we could have made it a two-hour episode but i think we've probably made it long enough for those listening but um um i'd love thank you so much for being guests on the show and and thank you also for the work that you're putting out um into the field to, to educate us about um about the skills-based organization it's it's really good can you let listeners know how they can find you on social media find out more about your work at deloitte um michael i'll come to you first you might want to 
highlight the human capital trends, which I think is being published around the time that we're we're publishing this episode, which is the seventeenth of January. Um, so just interesting um, whether when the human capital trends uh, Deloitte human capital trends has been published as well. So I'll come to you first, Michael, and then Sue. I'll come to you uh, to round things off. Yeah, I'll let Sue talk more sort of uh, broadly. But yeah, absolutely. Thank you for highlighting that, David. Yeah, the human capital trends report by Deloitte is coming out mid January. It's a it's a sort of compilation of what we've talked about over the last few years. It's our twelfth year that we're putting out. We're very proud of this study. Uh, over ten thousand respondents globally. Um, so please look out for that. But Sue, over to you. I encourage uh, listeners to find some of our research. We've published a lot. We've sh- published shorter infographics, a primary article. And then for those who are data geeks like myself and probably Michael, we've published our full research findings um, in kind of a highly visual format. It's over 100 pages. We have 50 case studies. Um, so where can you find this? The the website, www.deloitte.com backslash SBO, houses um, the gamut of everything we've published. Um, and for our primary article, www.deloitte.com backslash skills-based organization is our primary article. And then, of course, we encourage you to LinkedIn, Michael Griffiths and Sue Cantrell, you know, reach out with questions, your interest. We're always happy to engage. Thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing, uh, meeting you in person at some point this year um, when I'm either in the US or, or, or either of you are in Europe. Such a pleasure and honour. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and a massive thank you again to Sue and Michael for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any future episodes and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that we can keep helping the HR field with our content. For more from us at Insight222 and to keep up with the latest industry trends, sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. For now, have a great day and I hope to see you next week for the next episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. Stay safe, stay well.